Welcome to the Get Your Donut Podcast. We're here to exchange our consumeristic Christianity for a life fully surrendered to Christ, and to never let our faith be as simple as grabbing coffee and a donut in the lobby. Let's do this. Well, welcome everybody to the Get Your Donut Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Reed, and I'm excited for another episode this week. We've got Jake Saxton joining us again uh, on the show. Jake, thank you so much for being here, man. Noah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be back on the podcast today. Oh, of course. We're, we're pumped to have you. Uh, an exciting topic uh, for you and I, for sure. But before we jump in, why don't you give us, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself again, briefly introduce uh, yourself to our listeners so that they know, uh, you know who you are and where you're at, where you're coming from. Yeah. So I am the next generation pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in San Clemente, California. So I get the uh, privilege to work with students from the age of junior high all the way through some of our <laughs> young marrieds at the church. We're a, we're a smaller church here in San Clemente, about 150 to 200 people in total. Uh, but that just gives me all the more ability to get to know some of our members. And so it's a, it's a great way to get to know our families, but um, I'm honored to be able to do ministry by the beach. So I can't complain too much. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good, man. That's good. Well, today, today we're going to talk about, yeah, we got Easter right around the corner. Um, which is obviously when when we gather and celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the resurrection from an apologetics lens. We want to we want to give uh, you guys some some reasons why uh, you can believe in the resurrection. Some uh, some reasons why you might be able to defend the resurrection, or at least know uh, that that you can have confidence in the hope that you have. Uh, but before we do that. Uh, Jake, why don't we let's just talk about a couple books or resources maybe that we could recommend uh, to people regarding uh, either apologetics or the resurrection, just kind of in that in that frame. Uh, did you have any that you came up with that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Noah, there's there's tons of books on the apologetics of the resurrection. Um, both of us going through seminary, we've we've probably had our uh, hand share of of books on the resurrection, but one that. I really have enjoyed that our staff just recently went through uh, together at the church was one called Another Gospel. Uh, that's Another Gospel with a question mark. And that is by a writer named Elisa Childers. Um, it is a great book on really the rise of progressive Christianity, especially in the West. And uh, I believe that Childers does a great job of explaining to us as Christians what it means to understand objective truth and how we are called to really refute this false gospel that is on a rise, especially in the West here. Yeah. Um, but she has on page 105 of her book, I love what she says about uh, how progressive Christianity views the resurrection and why it's so important that we understand a correct uh, version of the, of the resurrection that's founded in scripture. She says this, speaking of uh, progressive Christians, she says, however, with their denial of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, many progressive Christians take it one step further. Jesus is no longer our savior, but an example of how we can do good works in the world and forgive others. And when I read that, man, that is just heartbreaking to me of knowing that some people are actually viewing uh, the work of Christ on the cross as as not an atoning work for our sins, but it's actually just a good moral example for us. And so uh, long story short, I would highly recommend this book to any uh, Christian who wants to understand what this progressive movement really is. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I'll, I'll definitely link that below uh, for those of you who are interested in that one. Um, a couple of the ones that came to mind for me, uh, a simple like Man, one of the most simple apologetics books, and simple not in a bad way, but just in a good way, uh, is More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Um, and this, it's it's short, it's an easy read, but it just walks through uh, basically some evidence about Jesus, why he was more than a carpenter is the title, um, and and why we we should call him Lord. Uh, but this is a book that's like it's simple enough, it's it's easy enough to understand, like it's not. Christiany, it's not too Christianese uh, to where like if you have a, somebody in your life who's genuinely asking questions about who Jesus was, this is like one of the few books that I would feel comfortable recommending to a non-Christian and saying, "Hey, check this out uh, and read this," because he does he just does a good job at being relatable to kind of both sides and just walking through uh, some of the evidence in a simple way. So that's more than a carpenter uh, by Josh McDowell. Uh, and then on a more academic sense, uh, on the resurrection, there's two that come to mind. Uh, there's Mike Lacona's 
uh, Defense of the Resurrection, which is a, a really thick book. Uh, but again, Lacona is one of the leading scholars on the resurrection. And so he just walks through a lot of the evidence for the resurrection in his book. Um, and it, and it's, it's really solid. I haven't read the whole thing, but just bits and pieces for school. Um, and then another one is uh, Andrew Loke has a book called Investigating the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about that again a little, little bit later on the episode. But last I checked, this book was free. Uh, at least on the Kindle version. So I got it for free. Um, and he essentially very logically just walks through all the possibilities of what could have happened in the resurrection situation. And so we'll, we'll talk about this, but you know, he takes like the empty tomb and he's like, these are the only six options for what could have happened for the tomb to be empty. And then he just like logically, historically, medically, even just walks through each of those options and kind of shows like, why he believes basically the resurrection to actually be the best explanation uh, for the evidence that we have. Uh, but again, really just faithful to the evidence, doesn't overclaim or overstep, uh, but just very logically, again, walking through some of those options. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's Investigating the Resurrection of Jesus by Andrew Loke. Uh, and I'll link all of those uh, below. But as I said, uh, when we first started, you know, Easter's coming up, Easter's right around the corner. Um, and and really, Easter is the center of our faith as as Christians. This is when we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which which uh, we're which we're about to talk about why that's so central to our faith. But but so th- this week really holds special significance for for those of us who who call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus. Uh, and so Jake and I want to dive in today about why we can have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and what it looks like to know, uh, to know more about the resurrection than, than maybe, uh, we do or to, or to keep learning about it. So, uh, Jake, why not, why don't you start us off? Why don't you jump in? Why, why might it be important for us as Christians to know why we believe in the resurrection? What's the difference between saying we believe Jesus rose and kind of knowing why we believe that? What do you think? Right. Yeah. Where do I start? Um, I would first start by saying, as you mentioned earlier, Noah, that our faith as Christians really does rest upon the historical reliability of Christ's death and resurrection, right? If there wasn't a death or resurrection of Christ, then our faith would be useless, right? There'd be no such thing as Christianity because Christ wouldn't have defeated death by rising on the third day. And so it is so crucial for us to understand the importance of why we believe in the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, rather than just saying, I believe it, but understanding the implications of why that had to happen. Um, so yeah, it's important to move from saying that we simply believe um, as to why we believe, because let's face it, Noah, we're in a society today that's that's considered a postmodern society that praises subjective truth. So that is, you know, based upon whatever you feel truth is or based upon whatever you you want to interpret truth to be. Um, but I think since this is the case, we must know objective truth that's found in God's word. So we're able to know how we can share that truth with others. So that's that's kind of where I would start, but I'm sure you have plenty more you'd like to add to that. Yeah, no, really, really the only thing I would add is that if someone is to ask you as a Christian, like what you believe, it's it's probably really likely that the resurrection is going to make it into your answer in some way or right. another. At least it should. Um, you know, if somebody says, what do you, what do you believe as a Christian? What does that mean to you? Probably your answer is, I, I believe Jesus was God. He came to earth. He died for my sins and he rose again. Like that's probably the most simple way to put it. Uh, and because the resurrection makes it into even the most simple answer of what we believe, I think that shows how crucial it is to us. Uh, but it also means that we ought to be able to to recognize that claiming somebody rose themselves from the dead could is probably a little out there to some people. Uh, and right. so we we want to be able to know like, but here's why I believe that actually happened. And not that not that like just faith for its own sake isn't enough for you because because it is. But I think what we're going to get into is like this can encourage you in your faith, bolster you uh, in your faith a little bit. And then as you're talking to other people, uh, it's not that we're like throwing these things in their face, but we're just as it says in First Peter three, like we're just we're ready with an answer if somebody asks, like, hey, right. why do you believe somebody actually rose from the dead? Uh, well, actually, I, you know, I think there's good evidence and da, 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 da. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think it helps us kind of move from, uh, maybe undeveloped ish faith to, to a more mature faith where we're able to say like, yes, this is what I believe, but it's no longer a children's story for me. Uh, it, it holds the same awe for me that it did as a child. Uh, but it's, but it's, it's a real thing that happened. Um, and I think that's, 
that's important too, that we separate it from being kind of like a childhood myth story, uh, you know, fairy tale to this is an actual historical event with real people that actually happened. And because it was a miracle, it holds that awe and wonder for me, but I, but I believe it was an actual and real thing uh, that happened. I think going back, yeah, as, as you had mentioned in first Peter three fifteen, as, as Peter really gives us his command to, you know, be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that's in you. I think there's an important line after he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So I, I think we tend to think when we think of apologetics, we think of, oh, we're just shoving our, you know, our, our opinions or our thoughts uh, or our theology down people's throats. And, and that's not at all of what we're trying to accomplish here. We're trying to um, love people. Uh, ultimately, yeah. we're trying to do it with grace but with truth at the same time, we saw Jesus yeah. do that numerous times throughout his ministry, right? Where he, his yeah. ultimate goal is to love people, but in loving people, you want to point them towards truth. And that might offend people um, because people don't always want to hear the truth. And so when we think of apologetics, we have to remember yeah. Peter's call to us in first Peter. So I think that was a great, yeah. great way to explain that. No, I think, I think that's true. The gentleness and respect portion <clears throat> is huge, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't, he doesn't say, right? Like, so stop teaching the truth if you're going to offend somebody, which is exactly right. what you're getting at. That The reality is when when we're dealing with, with worldviews or with, with claims like the resurrection of Jesus, we're, we're dealing with a little bit of what you talked about earlier uh, with objective versus subjective truth. And we have these uh, objective claims that we actually believe that Jesus died and then rose again from the dead. Not like that's what I believe from my like like my children's Bible. Like that's I actually believe that in history that that took place. And so right. if that happened, like if that's a real historical event that happened in the real world, then that like that has a claim and an implication on everyone's life. And so the the reality is the resurrection is is huge, like even for our evangelism, because if it happened then like my neighbor who might not believe that it happened, like it's kind of my job to to let him know like this happened. And I do that with gentleness and respect and I can be thoughtful and prayerful about how I do that. But right. I start to look around at people and I start to realize like, do you know that he rose from the dead? Like, did you know that actually happened and that that changes things about you and about the world? Uh, yeah. If he's just stayed dead or, or he none of that really happened, like, then it's just this fairy tale and it might be nice for me, but it wouldn't have an implication on other people. And so I think right. uh, as we deal with kind of those claims, we have to recognize like if we're claiming that Jesus actually rose from the dead, the implications of that being true uh, are enormous. It matters to every single person uh, on the earth, right? Like why would I risk being humiliated at work for the sake of, of a fairy tale? But Absolutely. for the sake for the sake of Jesus actually atoning for my sin, yeah, I, I I should be willing to to be humiliated at work for that. I should be willing to to be uh, isolated uh, for that or embarrassed for that because because it's true and it matters. And whether you believe it or not uh, is is not up to me. What's up to me is that I ought to tell you that Jesus rose from the dead and that and that He did it because He loves you. So uh, I think I think again we we believe it's a real historical event. We believe that that means it has significance. Uh, for for everybody uh, around us, and then we say that that we ought to approach that with thoughtfulness and gentleness, and respect. But but let's do this. Let's get into some of the evidence for the resurrection. So there's a few things we want to talk about. Uh, as this episode's leading up to Easter, guys, this episode might be a little bit long because there's just so much to talk about here. Uh, but there's a specific place that we want to start, which is uh, I think First Corinthians 15. Is that right, Jake? Is that where yep. we want to go first? Yep, I think that's great. Cool. Great. So let me let me read. I have I've got my Bible right in front of me. So let me read a couple of verses from First Corinthians 15, uh, and then we can we can kind of jump in. Does that sound good? Sounds great, man. Let's do it. Okay. I'll start. Uh, man, where should I start? I'll start in verse one. I guess that's a good place to start. The beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's always so, good to start there. Yeah. It says, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand." And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. I guess I'll, I'll stop there sure. uh, first. And so we have 1 Corinthians uh, 15, that's basically one, one through five. Uh, 
Jake, why is this passage significant? Yeah, for many reasons, but I want to just first start with the author of who is writing first Corinthians 15. And we know that this is the apostle Paul. And I just want us to think first, when we think about the reliability of the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, I want us to think of the person of Paul. So I'm reminded in first Timothy chapter one, um, starting in verse 12, as, as Paul is writing to a young Timothy, he is talking about his former self of who he used to be. And then now who he is in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to just start in first Timothy one, starting in verse 12. Okay. Paul says, this is Timothy. I yeah. thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And now here's the catcher, verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on by just saying that saying is trust trustworthy and deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And so, yeah, I think it's important that we know the testimony of who Paul was. Paul, as he says in his own words to Timothy, formerly, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was uh, making Christians get killed. And I, and I watched that, but we see this radical testimony and transformation of the apostle Paul. And he is the the person who was writing on the historical evidence of the life, yeah. death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I think that's so important for us to first make note of, uh, any thoughts there, Noah? Yeah. I, I, uh, I can't think of the exact word right now, but, but, uh, historians or scholars would call this like something along the lines of like the embarrassment factor, right. right. In the sense that like, there's no, Paul gains nothing <laughs> from <laughs> right. from supporting the resurrection. In fact, he says multiple times in scripture he actually loses everything yep. for the support of of uh, the scripture and eventually going to lose his life uh, as as well. And so I think that that's strong evidence, right? Like why would somebody he's got this promising career ahead of him as a Pharisee, as a teacher of the law? Like why would somebody throw that away for something that that they weren't sure about, right? But Paul's like, look, I'm I'm so sure of the resurrection. That I've, I count everything else as loss just so that I can know Jesus. So yeah, I think I think the fact that Paul's writing this uh, is huge. And then and then you notice uh, in First Corinthians one, uh, he he says, you know, I'm I'm preaching this gospel to you which you've received. And then later on in verse three, he says, I'm delivering this to you which is what I also received. So it's like when Paul was convert, converted, this is what he was taught. And then uh, what's what's really cool about First Corinthians three to five is that this passage is actually recognized as being part of an, a creed of the very, very early church, uh, right. like before Paul's conversion. So uh, quickly, right? Jesus died probably around AD 30-ish, um, give or take a year. Paul was converted uh, around AD 32, give or take a year. Uh, and so you have Paul coming in about two years after the resurrection and saying, this is what I was taught when I was converted. So within the first two years, right? It's it's this creed, it's these words. It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So this is part of this like early church creed that says like at the very base level, this is what we believe. Christ right. died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared to us, right? And, and, and Paul's saying like, I was taught that when I was first converted. I'm now teaching this to you. Uh, and so I think in some ways, like we ought, we recognize uh, that the resurrection of Jesus has always, always been central to the Christian faith. And we're going to read a portion of this passage in a little bit. But uh, Gary, Gary Habermas, who's uh, kind of a, a leading scholar uh, on the resurrection uh, in the world of academia and has just some wonderful resources out there. He, he has this quote, I, I'm going to kind of read parts of it, but it's from uh, it's from his book, Tracing Jesus. But he says, do critical scholars agree on the date of this pre-Pauline creed, referring to 1 Corinthians 15? Even radical scholars like Ludman think that the, uh, quote, the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion, no later than three years after the death of Jesus, end quote. Uh, similarly, Golder contends that Paul's testimony about the resurrection appearances goes back to at least what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple years after the crucifixion, uh, end quote from, from Golder. And then back to Habermas says, an increasing number of exceptionally influential scholars 
have very recently concluded that at least the teaching of the resurrection and perhaps even the specific formulation of this creed in 1 Corinthians 15 dates to AD 30. In other words, there was never a time when the message of Jesus' resurrection was not an integral part of the earliest apostolic proclamation. No less a scholar than James Gunn or James Dunn even states regarding this crucial text, this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. That is incredible. (laughs) Like the fact that we have this early creed that like, Within a couple months of Jesus's death, this is what like the apostles and those followers of Jesus were saying to each other. Like sometimes in churches, we say the apostles creed, we say these sorts of things. This is what they were saying. Like we believe Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again and he appeared to us. And like that was being repeated within a couple months of Jesus's death. I think that's incredible. Yeah. There's, there's nothing, uh, cute or creative about the way he says that he just says no died. he <laughs> was buried and he rose again like that's that's what you need to know <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, yeah again it the the message of jesus's death and resurrection as atonement for our sins right that part's in there too as atonement for our sins right. has always been central uh to christianity and even like a liberal dating of saying that was probably three years late dude in realm of history three years is amazing right? Yeah, like that's like evidence, within three yeah. years. That's incredible. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I think, I think that that portion of the, of the creed, uh, or that part being of the creed, like that shows that the, the resurrection's always been central to the Christian faith, uh, to the point where I just wanted to read this verse from later on, uh, in the chapter, um, verse 14, uh, first Corinthians 15, 14, uh, I'll start in 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Uh, he may even say uh, in verse 17, right? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And right. so this is the centrality of the resurrection to our faith is that uh, it has always been a part of the Christian faith from the from the beginning. But secondly, if it didn't happen, our, our faith is... Uh, worthless, right? Yeah. I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that part, Jake. No, yeah, I, I kind of want to double down and just go on the verse right before on verse 12. Paul himself is questioning. He's saying, now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, right? Mm-hmm. So Paul himself mm-hmm. is saying, if if Christ is proclaimed risen from the dead, how can some of you doubt that that actually happened? And so, you know, as we get into in a little bit, we're going to talk about some of the the theories that skeptics have had of, of how Christ possibly didn't die or how he didn't get truly buried or how he didn't really rise from the, from the grave. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's so important that, that Paul himself is is questioning that, right. If Christ yeah. really did rise from the grave, how, how could you question that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I, I, yeah, I think this passage is, is hugely central to our faith as Christians, obviously hugely uh, central to the way that we celebrate Easter, why we celebrate Easter. Um, and so we, we wanted to start off with that just to, to, you know, really cover our base of like, look, the resurrection is everything to Christians. Right. If it didn't happen, you know, everything like you and I's careers are pointless right. what uh, are we doing if, here? if this thing didn't happen. Uh, but because it did, it, it changes everything. And so uh, <clears throat> what I would like to do now is, is move maybe more into some of the specific uh, evidence for the resurrection. I think this is like evidence of of why we should believe that the resurrection is important. Uh, but there's there's really two like two kind of issues I want to get into eventually, which is the the issue of the empty tomb and then the issues, the issue of like the appearances of of the risen Jesus to people. But before we get there, uh, you know, probably our most consistent uh recording historically of these things happening is the New Testament. Uh and so uh, you know, to to make sure that we're being fair to all sides, like, why should we trust the New Testament? Let's start there. Like, why should we even believe what it says? I don't know if you've got thoughts you want to jump into on, you know, why should we trust the New Testament? What do we think about the Greek New Testament? Well, this is going to sound elementary, Noah, but we know that scripture is infallible. It is the inspired word of God that God's spirit spoke through the the writers of scripture. So if we truly believe that God's word is inerrant as, as Christ followers, then we must hold the new Testament to be true. Like that's just plain and simple. Um, So I I just wanted to start with that before we keep moving, because if we, 
uh, begin to question the reliability of the New Testament scriptures, then in sense, we are questioning the perfection of God's word. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good. Especially, especially for us as Christians, uh, it's a really dangerous place when we start to kind of pick and choose what parts of scripture we believe to be true and what parts we don't, you know, like for somebody who's maybe skeptic on the outside, not doesn't call themselves a Christian. Like that's how I would expect for you to interact with this. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're picking and choosing which parts of, of scripture you think are true or have implication on your life, uh, that's just not, that's just not open to you. Like that door has not been left open to you by scripture. And so you're actually, you know, you're doing a disservice to God's word in that sense. So yeah, that's, that's really good. I I love second Timothy three 16 that says all scripture has been breathed out by God, every word. Right, right, like not a, just the Old Testament, not just you know to the, the fullest. Every every T crossed and every dotted I yep. has been breathed out by God, uh, and yeah. So I think I think that's huge, right? We we recognize it's infallible, which means that when it says something happened, whether whether like we see the direct evidence for that or not, we are called to trust that that happened. And sometimes yeah. that's difficult. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a great place to start. Um, what I wanted to, to touch on too, was, uh, maybe for those of us who are a little bit more skeptical, uh, who are kind of like, Hey, you can't point, you know, to the book and say, this book claims for itself to be true because obviously it does. Where do we get from outside of that? Sure. Um, I wanted to just briefly touch on, uh, what we call, I guess, t- the textual criticism of the new Testament, which really simply put, again, that the goal of this is not to be overly academic, but to to simplify some of these things is that when we examine something from history, we look at a couple of things uh, when it when it comes to historical documents. The first thing we look at is how many manuscripts do we have? And and manuscripts are copies of the original. Uh, this might be you know frustrating to some of you. We don't we're not really dealing with originals when it comes to uh, you know, historical documents. We don't have any of the original New Testament. I don't think like we, we have copies, but that's how it is with every ancient work. And so right. that, that shouldn't like, that shouldn't rattle your faith because, uh, you know, you can look at evidence for Alexander the great and recognize like, we don't have the originals for that either. We've got copies, right? So, sure. so, uh, that's okay. Uh, and then another thing I would add to is a manuscript is anything that's a, about the size of a credit card or larger. So it's not that we have a full copy of the new Testament or a full copy of the gospel of John, but if we have a fragment, that's the size of a credit card or bigger, that counts as a manuscript as a copy. So, uh, if you, if you weren't sure how they were counting that before, uh, that, that should kind of give, uh, some evidence. So you look at the number of manuscripts and then you look at the gap of time between when the earliest copy showed up and when the original was supposed to have been written. Um, right. Am I on track here? So right, far? No, yeah. And, I, and I, I think as you were saying, even if we don't have the complete manuscript, as you were saying, we have even a little bit of a, a shorter um, version of that. We yeah. still must know that there should be a good reason as to why it was included in the Christian canon. Then there, there must yeah. be importance to it. Even if it's not the full thing, there's enough there that can radically transform lives. So I think that's, yeah. that's great, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, so you look at the number of copies, number of manuscripts, you look at the gap of time between the two, and then we kind of like make a historical judgment call decision. You know, we use our, our brains and decide like, do we think this is trustworthy, you know, or maybe we have other sources that say something else. Maybe we've got other sources that say something else. And so we kind of evaluate all of these things. Uh, what's interesting is that nothing comes close at all to the number of manuscripts and the gap of time that the New Testament has. So obviously more manuscripts closer together is better than less manuscripts farther apart, right? That's the easiest way to think about this. Uh, when it comes to like, uh, I don't know, like the, even like Plato. So Plato's tetralogies, which would be like a collection of his, his dialogues, uh, you know, like there's, there's, man, I think the earliest copy comes within like 250 years of when the original was supposed to be written. And there's about 240 copies or something. This is the last time I looked at this is off the top of my head. So give me grace if I'm a little bit <laughs> off, but, um, that's like, that's pretty good. Like you've got a, over 200 copies within 200 years. Like that's not, that's not terrible. Um, or we look at like, uh, Tacitus, right? And we have like, uh, who's this famous, uh, Roman historian, which like, if you've learned something about, uh, Tacitus, or if you've learned something about Rome, likely it came from, uh, it came from, from Tacitus. And so we look at Tacitus and I think last time I saw this, uh, was like, we had something like 
I don't know, 38 to 40 ish, uh, manuscripts from Tacitus 36, maybe, but the earliest manuscript is within like 750 years of when Tacitus would have lived. Wow. And we still base so much of our Roman history off of Tacitus. And so, uh, anyways, when it comes to the new Testament, we have over 5,800 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. This is not, not counting anything that would have like been originally written in anything else but Greek. So the Greek New Testament, fifty over 5,800 manuscripts. And the earliest one is within 30 years mm-hmm. of, of the writing. So you have the Gospel of John, which was the latest gospel uh, written. And then the earliest manuscript we found would be uh, P52, I think, which is the John Rylands fragment uh, of the Gospel of John dated to about 120, 125 AD. Uh, and the Gospel of John being written around 90 to 100 AD, like that puts you right. within 30 years. Right. That's insane. Like nothing else touches it. So I, I don't know. It's Again, I we could like nerd out on the dates sure. and the and the copies, and I don't want to bore everybody. But the the point is like nothing else even touches uh, the New Testament. There's this uh, this picture I love. I I've, I got this from uh, Sean McDowell. Uh, but it's it's if you were to to stack up like if every manuscript uh, that you have of ancient Greek writers uh, was like I don't know what it is two inches or four inches thick ish. And you were to stack them all up together, the average Greek writer gets about four feet tall of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a two-story house for reference is like 20 feet tall. Uh, the Statue of Liberty is like 300 feet tall. The Empire State Building's a thousand, you know, 250 feet tall. Uh, the New Testament manuscripts would stack to be a mile high, 5,280 oh, feet. It's it's unbelievable how much how much manuscripts we have compared to anything else. Uh, and so I think that speaks, what we just wanted to do was speak to the fact that we believe the New Testament to be reliable before right. we kind of move into some of these other things. Uh, so again, sorry about that, guys. I still I still have the 40-minute Zoom time limit on my on my Zoom account. So uh, sometimes I got to jump off. But yeah, any, anyways, uh, New Testament, really, really trustworthy and reliable. Um, Jake, was there anything else you wanted to add? Sorry, I felt like I just kind of was rambling there for a minute, but is there anything else you want to add oh, before we kind of move would, on to, I was just sitting back and awe, man, you were, you were going off there for a minute. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for sharing with us. I, I just told Jake, this is like, I just recently preached on this. So I had the graphics like saved on my computer. They were in front of me. And so I was able to kind of pull some of that stuff up, which, which I thought is good. So, uh, Jake, let's, let's move into, uh, you know, the empty tomb, the appearances of, of, uh, the risen Jesus, uh, I don't know. What What do you think? Like, why do these matter? Where Where can we look? How should we think about uh, some of these things? I don't, sorry, I'm kind of putting you on the spot there, but let, let's kind of move forward uh, to oh, that yeah. to that uh, direction. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to tackle the theories that are against those uh, those specific ways that that Christ rose from the empty tomb and Christ was buried, or do you want to get into the evidence for that? Oh, good question. Let's let's start, I guess, with the evidence for maybe, uh, and then we can kind of come back and say, hey, these are some of the other things uh, that people might believe or or might might hold against. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah, we see. I mean, in the New Testament, we see after Christ was was buried, we see um, the eyewitness accounts of the apostles going by to the tomb and seeing the tomb empty. Right. So they they knew that that Christ wasn't there, um, and as we see, it's important to understand that scripture is uh, the the perfect word of the Lord. And so when we read that, we understand, as it says in scripture, that the tomb was empty. In fact, um, I don't know if you want to add something to the empty tomb. I was I was thinking more towards the um, the theories against the empty tomb. But why don't you why don't you add to what I just shared there? No, <laughs> we go in from that. Yeah. Yeah. I think all, all I all I would add is is that, man, no matter like who you are, I guess we would say that that the issue or the problem of the empty tomb uh, is something that deserves an answer. So whatever right. your worldview is, you kind of got to make sense of the fact that like, yo, this tomb was empty. Like he died and uh, they buried him and then like it was empty. You know, I, I think right. like that's that's kind of the problem we want to present is like, uh, you know, when it, when you look at worldviews, they don't like. If you were to examine all the worldviews and the answers they give to all the basic questions, you know, like, why are we here? Why do we exist? How did we get here? What's our purpose? Like, they all strive to answer those questions. 
But like, we don't look at them and be like, which one do I like the best? Which one makes me most comfortable? Like, right. We look at them and we're like, we recognize they're probably all going to fall short a little bit, but like, which one actually lends itself to probably being the most true. And that's like why I've landed with Christianity, even in times of my own faith, when I'm doubting, like, which has happened even recently sometimes where I'm like, man, like, what is like, what are we really doing here? And I come back Mm. to the fact that like, yeah, but this is the best explanation for the world. And this, it must be true based on the evidence I've seen. And so same thing with the empty tomb is it's like, look, somebody dying and rising from the dead. I understand that that's a little hard to believe, but like, wait till you hear some of the other things. (laughs) that people right. think instead it actually right. makes the resurrection i think sound more reasonable so right uh you were going to say something too uh maybe about like the pharisees and and their like what they thought i don't know if i forget yeah. exactly what you're saying but yeah one of you know one of the the claims from the pharisees which were the the highest religious leaders here in the first century um we see these men saying that the apostles stole the body of, of christ That's from right. the tomb and uh, I, I was listening to uh, to a video from Sean McDowell, and, and I love how he kind of cleverly worded this, but he was saying if the Pharisees were to make the claim that the apostle stole the body from the tomb, they're in fact claiming that the tomb was empty. So yeah. the very fact that the apostles were saying that there was no body <laughs> in the tomb kind of proves the point that the tomb was empty. So yeah. it, it's interesting how we see that in, in scripture, but... Um, yeah, I, I just find that to be almost comical, you know, trying to come up with all these excuses as to why, you know, that couldn't have been true. But you're you're saying what exactly happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's that is. Uh, yeah, that's exactly the point is like uh, you have to make sense of this. The Pharisees decided to like make sense of this by uh, by claiming that the disciples stole the body, which, yeah, precisely proves the point that like they were trying to make sense of the fact that Jesus's body was gone. What do you, you know, what do you do uh, about that? I don't know. So that's, that's one of, I guess the, uh, the uh, theories or hypothesis for the empty tomb would be that there was this, this body that was stolen, uh, right. That somebody um, stole the body of Jesus. And then there's, there's a couple other ones. Uh, Jake, were there any on your head or on the, off the top of your head? I'm trying to pull up, on my computer, yeah. I have somewhere uh, this picture of kind of the the list of them. But was there any any other ones that you were going to add? Yeah, when when I was in a earlier course for the apologetics program, and in, I mean, I did a uh, research paper on the hallucination theory, and uh, that was a theory that skeptics have given for for hundreds and hundreds of years that. Um, during the transfiguration, when Christ appeared um, to the the three hundred to to the multiple hundred of, of, of believers, that all the believers were actually under under this hallucination experience, that it wasn't an actual literal transfiguration of them seeing the risen Christ. Um, and so I know that that's that's a theory that people people bring up. So I, I don't know if you you have anything to share with that, Noah, but I know that was something that I I did some research on and i i didn't even know that that was a thing until i looked it up so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like okay i, think, I guess uh, that's a theory <laughs> this is this is where this andrew loke book comes in really really handy I, I haven't read the whole thing but again he he just walks through like all of these things so like i i had a, a section pull up that i thought i could just uh give as like an example of how the book works and an example yeah. of like how we can think through uh some of these things as well which is uh he kind of asked the question. So like what happened to the body of Jesus? Uh, right. Like, okay. So the body of Jesus was gone. What happened? And he says, uh, on this page, right. And I'm going to summarize cause he's a little bit academic, but he says, either one of these three things was true. Jesus was not crucified. This would be called the escape hypothesis or Jesus was crucified and he wasn't buried. This would be the unburied hypothesis or Jesus was crucified and he was buried which means that either one of these things are true. The body of Jesus remained buried or the body of Jesus did not remain buried. If the body of Jesus did not remain buried, then either one of these things was true. The body was removed by uh, non-agents such as like an earthquake or animals, uh, or the body was removed by agents, in in which case either one of these things is true. Other people remove the body, like the friends of Jesus or the enemies of Jesus, or neither friends nor enemies uh, removed it, but tomb robbers removed it. Or Jesus himself removed the body. 
which if that is true, then Jesus either didn't die on the cross, which means uh, he swooned on the cross and exited the tomb later. This is called the swoon hypothesis, or Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and exited the tomb. Those are the only options you've got. Like one of those things has to be true with hap- with what happened uh, to the body of Jesus. And so uh, one of the my classmates, when I was going through my master's, uh, made this like little like schematic, like logic tree thing uh, based off of this book that basically just answers the questions like, was Jesus crucified? If you say no, like, okay, then he must have escaped the crucifixion somehow, which goes against all of the historical records that we have. Like even, even the non-Christian historical records that we have would probably claim that Jesus has been crucified. So if you say, yes, he was crucified, then the next question you have to ask is, was he buried? Well, if he wasn't buried, like, I don't know, then, then this, this early creed that's been developed within months of Jesus's death holds false information, which, uh, as you and I know, like, uh, when, when you share a story about somebody that wasn't true, uh, and they're there to refute it, it doesn't last very long. Right? right. And so like, that's what's happening with the, with the whole unburied thing is it's like the tomb was emptied and people would be like, Oh, maybe he was just never buried. And like the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb and you know, the Simon, like all these people who buried him were like, no, like he definitely was buried, you know, like that definitely happened. So then if your answer is yes, it's like, well, did he remain buried? And if it's, and if the answer is yes, then it's like, all right, well then the Christians are totally wrong. The tomb wasn't empty. The woman must've gone, women must've gone to the wrong place, Um, you know, and there's this random tomb that was empty, but that doesn't explain why, uh, you know, like the guards, the Roman guards who are guarding the tomb would be afraid if the stone was rolled away because it was just the wrong tomb. Right. So anyways, you just work through basically all these things and try to explain it, uh, you know, in like the most logical way possible. And I think Loke and, and myself and you and all these other people would come to, to say like, it may probably makes the most sense that the tomb was empty because Jesus himself like rose from the dead and then, and then moved on. Right. And I think too, I, and we could get into a whole other episode on old Testament yeah. <laughs> prophecies that were fulfilled, but I, I was just thinking back in Isaiah chapter 53, just one of many old Testament prophecies that are pointing to the death and resurrection of Christ. And I just wanted to briefly bring up um, verse four uh, through six here. And it says in Isaiah 53, starting in verse four, surely he has borne our griefs. So he's talking about Christ, the future Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is an Old Testament prophecy pointing to the death of Christ. And just as a quick side note, I think we need as Christians to be able to understand and to believe that Christ is who he says he is. So when, when Jesus came coming into Jerusalem, knowing on that donkey that he was going to to die for our sin. I I think for us as Christians, we need to see uh, Old Testament scriptures like this to to see that they were pointing, right, years and years before to this coming Christ. And so I think, you know, as a believer, I may have a slight bias of saying like, oh, this is enough evidence in itself. But I think even if you're a skeptic, you see things like this, of seeing all these prophecies that were fulfilled through the work of Christ. I think that just uh, points to us about how reliable um, the death and resurrection of Christ is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's incredible. And yeah, a whole, a whole other episode. And like, there's so much depth and richness to the prophecies that are fulfilled. Uh, it's, it's mind boggling for me. I've, I've been like kind of vulnerable with some of my closer friends right now that like prophecy and the prophets is like the hardest section of scripture for me to read because, Mm -hmm. uh, it's the one I like, I understand the least easiest, if that makes sense. And so it's, it's like overwhelming for me sometimes, like how many, even as I just read my Bible with like random cross references in here and it's like, yeah, this fulfilled whatever Psalm 22 or these sorts of things. And I'm like, I don't even know that was prophecy. I just was reading it <laughs> like as, you know, and, and it's just, it's so amazing the way that the the word of God, like is completely synthesized and works together and is interconnected across however many different authors ever, however many thousands of years. So yeah, that's you, yeah, that's good stuff. Thanks. Thanks for adding that in. <clears throat> um, the, the empty tomb, right? Left empty. 
And what happens after that, if we come back to first Corinthians 15 is that, uh, Christ was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he goes on. Uh, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, Mm -hmm. most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And then last, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So the next thing you're kind of left with, right, is this eyewitness testimony. So even if you explain away the empty tomb with with one of these hypotheses that I just don't think does justice to the the historical problem, you're left with, now, how do I explain the fact that over 500 different people claim to have seen the risen Jesus? Right. Were they all hallucinating or? Yeah. Like, what do we do? What do we do with that? I think, uh, I mean, you mentioned, yeah, hallucinating. That's probably like the most common, uh, I guess, nat- naturalistic or, or skeptical way to like explain that away. But like, right. what do we what do we do with that? I don't know. What, do you have any thoughts on, on what do we do with the risen, the appearances of the risen Jesus? I, I really don't because I... I, I don't really know where you get that hypothesis from, to be honest, because I, I think it's pretty clear that this was an actual historic event that that Christ uh, transfigured in front of 500 of, of his believers and they all saw it. And, you know, I think getting into a point that we'll probably touch on in a minute, we see the testimonies of his closest followers following this appearance to them after his after his resurrection. We see that they were willing uh, to die for something that they so truly believed that they experienced. And so I think from just a human perspective, we see that and we think, well, that sounds a little silly to put your life on the line for something. If you didn't truly believe that it was real. Um, So I think for us, it's important to note that these men were willing to die, to be persecuted, to be beheaded for the name of Christ. And so I think that just points to the reliability of Christ's transfiguration to his believers. Um, I don't know any, anything else you want to share on that Noah? Yeah, I just, I want to, I want to be careful. Uh, There's two things. The first is that uh, when you are saying transfigured in this sense, like what you mean is that he's appearing to uh, yeah, his disciples is risen. Uh, I'm curious, like our, our, our preacher just preached on like the transfiguration yesterday where uh you know jesus is like glory was revealed to uh his disciples and his clothes were like shining white they couldn't even look at him uh and i think like in some sense uh that's true in this sense like the disciples didn't recognize him like clearly there was something maybe a little bit different about sure. uh his his appearance and whatnot uh but i just i i would be hesitant to say that like just transfigured in the sense of like his glory was shining uh white when he appeared i i i just would be careful uh, to say that like, uh, so openly just cause I, I'm not familiar with that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I just, uh, right. when we use that word, we're just saying like he, he, he was risen from the dead and there was some, uh, to his but I just know that people often associate the word transfiguration with, uh, you know, like Christ in his glory, that's no longer hidden. Uh, and nobody can look at the face of God, uh, when he's in that state, but we see like his disciples eating with him, uh, and hanging out with him after he, uh, had, had risen. So just, I was just clarifying right. what, what you meant there, uh, by right. that word. Yeah, but, but the, the second thing I was going to say is that, uh, again, like this is, and maybe this is redundant at this point, but when you have the appearances of the risen Jesus, it's like, you only have so many options of what happened, right? Like this is, if you're going to explain it away, uh, you have the, I feel like these are your, what is it? Six options. The first is that, uh, it was all legend. Like nobody actually claimed to have experienced him as risen. It just kind of developed as legend that this was like a myth that just kind of developed, uh, or, uh, they, they claimed to have experienced him risen, but they knew it was a lie. So they made it up. Right. So you have, it was, it was either just kind of developed over time or they made it up. Uh, or, uh, you know, if they actually did experience something, uh, then maybe it was a hallucination. Like maybe they all hallucinated or dreamed, you know, the same thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, so you have, it was legend. Maybe it was a conscious lie. Uh, maybe they hallucinated the same thing. Uh, or, you know, if that wasn't it, maybe, maybe they, they had uh, the mistaken identity of Jesus. Like they didn't, it was, it wasn't actually him and they just thought it was him. Sure. Uh, some people make the argument like the twin brother hypothesis is like, Jesus had a twin brother that, that, 
Oh, that <laughs> showed up to the disciples and they thought it was a risen Jesus. But it's like they spent every day with him for the last three years. They would be able to determine if it was his twin brother or if it was right. him, you know, you know what he looks uh, like. Yeah. yeah. And so if it wasn't that, then maybe he swooned and revived. Right. Like maybe he he almost died on the cross. Uh, like, you know, like he was hung, hung on a cross for hours and they stabbed him in the stomach and water and blood poured out, but he didn't die. Um, he was just buried. And then a few days later had the strength to roll away the stone and walk out of the tomb himself, somehow disarming the Roman guards that were guarding his, his area. But even if he did all that, I heard a, a scholar say one time, like, imagine this Jesus who didn't actually die on the cross, exits the tomb on Sunday morning, bloody, beaten, infected, walking out, barely hobbling from his injuries from the most brutal way to kill somebody and appears to his disciples. And they they go, oh my goodness, wow, look at you. You've conquered death. That doesn't add up at all. Like that, <laughs> you would look at that man and be like, we need to get you to like a doctor as soon as humanly possible, right? right? You wouldn't look at him and be like, oh my gosh. He conquered death. You'd be like, you had a you had a near death experience and you barely escaped. Right, so that, that's kind of my issue with the swoon theory is it's like it doesn't make sense. Uh, and so then if he didn't swoon, then then again you're left with the fact that like uh, if he didn't rise from the dead, he he either rose from the dead supernaturally or naturally. And if he didn't rise supernaturally, then this is a complete scientific anomaly and like something in the natural world, like, I don't know, jumped on his chest in the tomb and like happened to do a CPR kind of a deal. And he rose from the dead and is super, you know, doesn't happen in the realm of science or you're left with the fact that like he is who he says he is and he rose. So those are like your six or seven options. Right. Uh, and again, it's, we're not, we're not going into like the, the deep academia on why you know we believe what we believe but it's just to make you guys aware that like there's only a limited number of options for how you answer those questions and you should know and do the research uh to back up why you believe uh what you believe and where you land so that that's kind of where i'm at with the appearance of the risen jesus i think that jesus actually appearing to those people is the best explanation of the evidence that we have uh but obviously again we're we're both biased being that we uh, you know, our Christians and pastors and and that's what we want to believe. Uh, and, and that's where we've landed. So, uh, Jake, we're, we're kind of coming to a close here. Um, but the question I have for you and for us to answer is, well, so if Christ is actually risen, then, then how does that affect my life? What's changed? You know, what, what's different about my life if Christ has actually risen? What do you think? Everything has changed. (laughs) Everything yeah. has changed for your life if, if Christ has truly risen from the grave. Because, you know, long long story short, I could this could be a long answer, but I'll make it brief. I think for us to understand the truth of of Christ dying, being buried, and risen from the grave, we must first examine ourselves and know that we are sinful, unrighteous people, and that for us, in order for us to truly be cleansed, in order for us to have truly new life we must rely on the perfect, obedient, righteous life of Christ. Because if we try to rely on anything else, we're doomed. So it is the soul blood that was shed on the cross for our sin is how we have new life in Christ. And so for us, how does that affect our life? That that changes everything. Because as Paul says, the former life is gone. The new life is here. We put on the new self. We put on the imputed righteousness of Christ that was, yeah. <laughs> that was beaten and shed and broken on the cross for us. Yeah. And Amen. now with that, Amen. now with that, we get to, we get to share that with other people. And that's, that's the greatest gift that we could ever have. We, we receive this gift of salvation through Christ on the cross. And now we have this opportunity to share that with other people. So yeah. I, I think it affects our life completely. Yeah, no, I completely agree. That was really well said. Uh, and and yeah, really good, a good point. What As you were talking, I thought about 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. And And I think that speaks to like the resurrection is the victory. Like, right. uh, Man, a oh man, rabbit trails. Uh, Phil Wickham <laughs> has this. Phil Wickham has this new song. Sunday is coming. Uh, we're big Phil Wickham fans over here. But uh, Sunday is coming, and and part of like the refrain is Friday is good because Sunday is coming. And mm. as I thought about that, I realized like 
You're right. Good Friday. Uh, I'm weird. Has always been my favorite holiday of the year. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. Uh, it started with a awesome Good Friday service I went to growing up, and and so there was like a lot of tradition around that. But uh, F- Good Friday is only a good thing if he actually rose. Right. Right. If he didn't rise, then Good Friday is like, you know, weird that we're all celebrating the funeral of this guy two thousand years later, still every year. Right. Uh, but so so Friday is good because Sunday's coming. Thank you, Phil. Um, but <laughs> Paul goes on to say, like, if we if we make it too much like eloquent wisdom and fancy words and all this, it loses its power. It's really Mm -hmm. simple. He died Mm -hmm. and he rose again. And he goes on to say, like, the word of the cross is folly uh, to to uh, to the to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So it it looks foolish. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. You know, it's it's uh, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And God chooses what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. And so he just kind of goes on to say, like, look, this is what we believe. And it's not my job. It's ironic. He says, I'm not going to do it with eloquent wisdom because he writes like some of the most, you know, beautiful things about God that are ever there. But, But his point is like, all we have is the fact that he died and he rose again. And that changes everything. Like you said, I think. Uh, yeah, it changes everything. It, it gives power to his his atoning and saving work on the cross. Uh, it calls us to uh, to trust in him and to follow him. Um, I, I put here in my notes, like it causes him to actually be worthy of my worship and my devotion and my life. Like because he has conquered death and the grave and sin, that's dude. That's something that's worthy of my attention and worthy of my focus, worthy of of being glorified, worthy of me devoting my life to him. If he didn't rise again, uh, you and I would both be like, dude, what are we doing here? Like, yeah, you why know, are but, we, but he why rose are we from doctors? the dead victoriously. Right. Uh, and, and so he's, he's worthy of, of my worship and my focus in my life. Right. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, so, so last thing I want to close with here is just practically we've, we've hit a lot of stuff, uh, again, kind of deep dive on some stuff. Uh, and I've been really fun for me, Jake, to just like nerd out with you on the, on the apologetic stuff, um, and, and get into stuff on the risen Jesus. But what I really want to offer here at the end is just some practical ideas, uh, for, you know, either using apologetics or being encouraged by the apologetics, or even just like we're heading into Easter, like what an opportunity to to evangelize and share our faith. So I just want to kind of move into a couple practical things. Um, so I was going to let you go first if you had anything to just say, like practical points to kind of close out our our talk here. Yeah, yeah. Something that just came to mind. I was actually just listening to a podcast just the other day on on Easter, and really it, it was very convicting in a lot of ways, but also very very encouraging for for pastors in this season. Um, so I'm speaking to pastors here. If, if you're listening, you're a pastor. Uh, my encouragement would be evangelism over entertainment. And what I mean by that is for Easter, we get this opportunity to preach the gospel. We have this opportunity to preach Christ for new people who are walking through our doors. And I think oftentimes, especially we see in our world today, we try to get cute with it a lot of the time of of getting people entertained with you know these 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 crazy lights and and all this stuff you know no this this podcast is on consumeristic Christianity so yeah. we, we can get into a whole thing on that but really in this time of Easter we're not doing too much different because if we're truly preaching the gospel we should be doing that each and every week but for yeah. Easter this is a specific time that we are focusing on new people who are coming through our doors that could be hearing the word preached for the first yeah. time. And so yeah. this is a time and a charge for pastors to focus on evangelism over entertainment, because you don't know the transformation that can happen to someone when they're, they're sitting under the preaching of the word of God. So yeah. that, that would just be my, my quick encouragement to, to any ministry leaders or pastors who are in here, but, but preaching the gospel can look different in many ways. So you yeah. don't have to be behind a pulpit to preach the gospel. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that's really good. And it's like, don't get me wrong. Like I love a good Easter morning petting zoo. Like I'm yeah. a fan, you know, like I love goats and sheep, bring them on. But this is what my pastor said yesterday is we're offering like a kid's, uh, a kid's event, uh, like this, the day before Easter. And he said, look guys, like this is, if, if all of us show up, this will be fun. But if it's only us, we will have completely missed the point. And so like, yeah, evangelism over entertainment, 100% of the time, the tension we live in is that 
our world and people who don't follow Jesus are craving and longing for entertainment. Right. And so we we offer entertainment, it, if you're thoughtful about it, as a hook for your evangelism. Mm-hmm. But what happens so often is that we get so focused on the entertainment piece that we do the evangelism piece poorly. And so what my pastor was saying is like, we're putting on this event. And he literally told the church, he was like, it's not for you. Like right, if you right. can show up and enjoy it, but it's not really for you. Bring your friends. It's yeah. for you to bring somebody who doesn't know Jesus so that they might like make a connection or make a relationship and like come back to church the next day and hear the gospel. And so like that's I I, I want to say that because it's like I don't want to shame like so many churches go all out for Easter and I think it has a good heart. But right. what happens is we get stuck on the entertainment that we forget to do the evangelism piece right. well. Like we have all these these extra booths and these things happening. But like at those things, we nobody's asking people like, do you know Jesus? Right. You know, like, have you met Jesus? Have you confessed faith in Jesus? It's just like, come and get a shaved ice and pet the goat. And <laughs> nobody's going to talk to you about Jesus. And like, hopefully you listen to the message, you know, and, and, and that's the point I think we're trying to make is like the evangelism piece of Easter is huge because there's so many people that come to church just on Easter. What an opportunity uh, for them to hear the gospel. And it's like, great, do what you will to like to get them there, but you better not neglect the evangelism portion of, of Easter Sunday. That's kind of right. where I'm at. Because I'm like, right. I don't think no, it's yeah. wrong to have some of these things, but like no. your heart and your motivation and the way you follow up, that is way more important. Definitely, yeah. We're we're not saying we're anti Easter eggs by any means. It's 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 always a fun time to <laughs> to to be with the kids and the family. Yeah, and do an Easter egg hunt. I'm not saying there's there's demons in the Easter eggs or anything like that. That's no, not no, what no, I'm no, saying. No. But but what they're I am solid. saying is keep the main thing the main thing. And yeah. I think that's just what Amen. we need to remind ourselves of. Yeah, really good, dude. That's that's such a solid point. Thank you for for bringing it up. Uh, the other thing I was going to say about the apologetics points is. Uh, for for me, the way I view them is like, they're really an encouragement to my faith and a bolstering of, of my mm-hmm. faith. Um, but they're not like what I would lead with when I, if I was going to evangelize somebody and everybody's style is different, sure. but like, I, I'm not going to like, just go over to my neighbor next door who like, I've been kind of cultivating a relationship with, you know, leading up to Easter and be like, Hey man, here's a book on why Jesus rose from the dead. You should come to church with me. And I say it out loud. And I'm like, doesn't sound like the worst idea ever, you know, but it's like, it's just not really my approach. I, uh, for me, I'm more like, look, I, I, this things now give me confidence in what I believe. Uh, and I'd like to, you know, be ready with an answer if somebody is to ask. Uh, but really I think evangelism comes through, uh, that relationship and just the, the simple, like the simple ask of like, come to church with me or my church doing an Easter egg hunt. Like I said, I noticed you got kids, like it's free. There's, there's going to be food. Like the people are super nice. Like, you know, do you want to come with me? Uh, or even just a simple sharing of the gospel. Like I think sometimes we, we get too like, overly heady with it. And again, it's like Paul said, like, we don't want to empty the cross of its power or empty Christ of its power by just saying like, you know, if somebody asks you what you believe, it's like, I I believe that Jesus came and he died for my sins and he rose again victorious. And that because of that, I have eternal life with him. And I believe he did the same thing for you. And I want that. And I want that for you. And so I think, I think you are ready with the apologetics. I think for me, it's really fun to learn. Like it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to me, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't know if it's necessarily like what we lead with in our personal evangelism, but I I think it can be a really encouraging uh, and kind of bolstering thing uh, for, for our faith. Do you, do you agree with that? Where do you land on that? Yeah, no, hundred percent, man. Because I think uh, if we're at the grocery store, we're at the beach with our family and, and there's a family that's sitting near us and we spark up a conversation. Yeah. People who are non-believers or skeptics to say the least, they are going to be looking at our actions as well. They're going to see how we carry ourselves and yeah, we could have all the head knowledge in the world and we could be apologetic experts and we could know the right things to say, the right academic yeah. terms to say and to share. But if yeah. people aren't bought into our character first before even trusting what we say, then we're kind of missing the point, right? Our yeah. actions have to exemplify what we're sharing with them. Yeah. <laughs> so if we claim yeah. to be Christians, but we're not acting like it, people aren't going to take what we say to be true. So, yeah. you know, that I, I think you nailed it right on the head, man. Good. Cool. Well, dude, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show again and for doing this episode with us. I think I would close with this is that Jake and I both would would really love if you're listening to this episode, we really want to challenge you uh, this Easter season leading up to Easter. You still got a few days left. 
share your faith with somebody, invite somebody to church, uh, explain to somebody what this weekend is really all about. If you don't know somebody, find somebody that you can, that you can share, uh, Jesus's death and resurrection with. This is a real, uh, event that happened that holds the greatest news that you could ever share with somebody, which is that they are lost, they were dead, but God loved them anyways and saved them through his death and resurrection. And so I think that's what Jake and I would leave you with that encouragement is like, please don't just hold all this in for yourself. Go out, share that with somebody, share that in your community, share that with a neighbor or you know a, f- a fellow uh, parent or a teammate or a coworker. Find somebody and, and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them this Easter season uh, and watch what God does with that. So thanks, thanks again, Jake. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Noah. Had a blast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Get Your Donut Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard, Rate the show and leave us a review that helps other people find us and it lets us know how you feel about it. I hope you have an awesome day and that you never settle for anything less than all in with Jesus. Thank you.